All right. Good morning, guys. Ah, week. Good morning, guys. That's better. All right. We are in the middle of a uh, sermon series called Get Greedier, and uh, we are going to Matthew chapter 6. And so go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, open up to Matthew 6. If you don't have a Bible, please, one gra- please grab one off the floor around you. And uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, you're going to be going to page 811. 811. While you're flipping over there, um, I do want to highlight two ways that you can get connected um, around here, and we would encourage you to. The first is, is our membership class. If you've been here a while and um, you know, you've, you've been thinking, this might be it, man. This might be my church home. This might be the place I want to be. If you're ready to put a ring on it, we're going to give you the opportunity twice a year. We, uh, we have a membership class, and um, this is your opportunity to jump in. And, and in the membership class, we cover all kinds of things about our identity as a church and, and what makes us tick and, and what it means to be a member and, and the rest of that. We would love for you to join us. If you want to join that, you need to go to Connection Point today. And, uh, and sign up for that, okay, because it starts next week. And, uh, and I encourage you, you'll be, I, I guarantee you, you'll be encouraged, and um, we would love to have you move into a deeper level of uh, community and mission with us. If you're new and um, you're not really sure um, who we are, what we're about, and you'd like to find out more, I want to let you know that we do have a, a connect group uh, that's starting up. A connect group is like a community group, but it is purposely... Um, uh, limited in duration. It's a way to connect with people, to, to study some material that really is at the core of our DNA, of, of who we are as a church and what the gospel means and who God is. And, and uh, it's a great way to, to just make some relationships, to discover um, how to be, you know, what it means to be in community around here. And, and, um, and so you need to visit Connection Point to find out more about that as well. Connection Point, again, is in the lobby uh, right outside the door. All right, we are going to Matthew chapter 6. And uh, we have spent the last couple of weeks in this section looking from verses 19 through 25. Let's go ahead and read these together. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. The word of the Lord. You want to impact a local community for good. You want to address issues of education, poverty, social injustice. There is no better way to impact a local community than to plant a local church. Because you're going to get people who live in that community, who come to love that community, who address the issues of that community. It's about planting a hope that's going to rejuvenate and change that community. Walking in Christ as a community on mission. And those three ideas, walking in Christ as community on mission, pretty much defines who we are and what we do. Um, We're about loving God. We're about loving each other. We're about moving out in love to people that don't know us. 
Trailhead's not exactly a traditional church name. And what I realized was I wasn't really naming it for us. I was naming it for the community. I was naming it for the people we hadn't met yet. What I found was Trailhead seemed to resonate, um, that, that name. And that's partly because Edwardsville is a town surrounded by trails. We have hundreds of miles of bike trails through the Metro East. And that idea of Trailhead connects us. The trails connect all the communities. It ties the entire community together. The Trailhead is the place where the trail begins and ends. It is the origination and the goal. And in that sense, it's a very spiritual reference in the sense that God really is the beginning of our stories and consummation. He's the one that, that, that began it all, and, and He's the one that's wrapping it all up. And in the middle, we're traveling this story. We're living our stories. We don't value just the insiders. I mean, that really is. There's a sense in which we want to welcome people in. We're kind of the beggars who found bread, but it's more bread than we can eat, and we're just happy to share it. And so there's that sense in which you're going to find that here. You're going to find people that are that are eager to just say, hey man, this is, this is what we got going on here and we'd love to share it with you. We have a unique opportunity right now to sacrifice, to invest. What we invest in is gonna last way longer than our presence. And so my hope coming out of this, one of, one of the things that we're, we're trying to do is, is obviously provide a need for, our, for our, our own body, our own people, that we'll have a place to meet. The building is a tool that we can use that's going to enable us to, um, to serve our people, serve our community, and serve the, the broader mission of the church. is that this will be um, not just a church that lasts for a couple years, but a multi-generational church, a church that will be in this community long after I'm gone and will continue to fight for what it means to be real, to, to really follow Jesus, to experience and, and know the love of God, and to connect with our community in a meaningful and um, in a relevant way. said repeatedly um, that we are at a historic crossroads for our, our young church of, of opportunity and, and challenge. Um, and uh, we have uh, really a, uh, an incredible uh, opportunity to band together as a community to do something in the life of this church that uh, is, is going to be um, very long-lasting, right? God has equipped us to buy a building, um, and we're in a situation where uh, we need to completely rehab the interior before we can use that space. Um, for our use, and that means we need to raise some money, right? We need, to, we need to come together and sacrifice together to make that happen, which means I get to spend a little bit of time teaching about money. Um, and I have two goals with this series. Um, the first, which is obvious, is I want to get us into the building. Um, I'm looking forward to us being able to maximize what God has given us and use it for our gathering purpose and for worship and for reaching out um, into our community, for putting down roots into this community so we can grow in ministry to our neighbors, right? Um, but I also want us to grow into the kind of people that will maximize the use of the building. It's not just about getting the building, right? We want to raise the money to get into the building, but it's more than that. I think the challenge of raising the money 
will and can actually do beautiful things in our hearts, right? Because the building is, is important, but it's nowhere near as important as the character of the people who will in, inhabit that building, who will worship in that building, and from that building reach out to and uh, serve the community, right? Um, so the building is an important step in our mission, and uh, we're making that very clear, but our mission is so much greater than the building um, because our mission ultimately is to go deep in grace and to share that grace with with others. So what that means is, is I get to spend some time teaching about money. And, um, and the primary goal of this, and I want to make it clear, is not primarily to raise money. Um, that is part of what we're doing. But really what I want to do is, is, is take this opportunity to call us to be a people who love God more than we love our money, right? That, that will allow this challenge to actually show us things about our hearts that, that we need to see in order to grow in our affection for God and, and to deepen our experience of grace. Now we are in our third week of the Get Greedy Er sermon series here in Matthew six. Um, if you haven't gone back and listened to the original series, Get Greedy, which which we preached a year and a half ago, it's online on our website. And I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, again, not not because it's about um, giving. It, it, the whole point is is that, that when we get greedy for the right things, it frees our hearts from greed for the wrong things. Right, so I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. It's out of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Um, and um, Paul just unpacks a lot of stuff that's really loaded and good for us. And, and so I encourage you to go back and listen. If you missed the first couple of weeks of this series, if this morning's your first morning, welcome. We're talking about money. Um, but over the last couple of weeks, um, we've unpacked some important things. So I encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons as well because they are foundational to understanding this passage. Just to review briefly, um, two weeks ago, we covered verses 19 and 21, where through 21, where Jesus said, um, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Essentially, what Jesus was saying is what you do with your money isn't just a practical issue. It's a heart issue, right? Jesus is making the point that that your checkbook is not a secondary issue to your spiritual well-being. It's a primary issue. A lot of people are surprised to find out that Jesus spoke more about money than he did love or, or heaven or hell or those three topics combined. And this is why. Because what we do with our money is deeply spiritual. So he said, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. Literally, do not treasure your earthly treasure. Don't worship it. Don't look to money and wealth and the things that it can do for you to do for you what only God can do. Don't look to it to be God. Instead, treasure your heavenly treasure. Treasure Jesus, God's gift to you, right? And God's love to you in Jesus, that the God of the universe hasn't abandoned you, but has enriched you through the work of his son, right? Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die. He was our substitute in judgment so that when we believe in him, um, when he rose again from the dead, it wasn't just for him, it was for us. We stand in his resurrection. We stand in new life. We stand with a new record and a new name, a new identity. Our past has been cleansed and our future is wide open to the beauty of grace and the blessing of God because, because we've been enriched in Christ, right? Treasure your heavenly treasure because what you treasure is where you bury your heart. 
What you treasure is what you're going to look to to meet your deepest heart needs. How foolish it would be to bury your heart in earthly treasures, in things that are passing away and unable to meet your deepest heart's needs, right? Last week, we looked at verses 22 and 23, and um, where he is talking about the, the eye and, and how um, when it's good, it allows light into the body. When it is bad, it, 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 it locks us up in blindness and affects our entire life. And what he's saying very simply is, is how you look at your money determines how you look at all of life. It's not isolated, right? You don't have your business life and your checkbook life and your, your church life and your school life and your work life and your family life as if your life could somehow be separated into different compartments, right? Life is holistic. And, and how we look, especially at this critical area, affects how we look at all of life. The lens through which, it's ultimately the lens through which you see everything else. So it's of primary importance to your spiritual well-being. It is not secondary. So where you set your heart, determines how you see life. You're going to end up either having grace vision or greed vision, right? We unpacked those concepts last week, right? You're either going to see life through grace. You're going to see all of life through the abundance of God's love to you and his provision for you in Christ. And that's ultimately going to birth within you a deep sense of gratitude and well-being, thankfulness and, and, and contentment, right? That will then allow you to move forward in generosity. And in fact, it will propel you forward in generosity because you're propelled by the generosity of God. Or you're going to look at life through the scarcity of greed. You're going to see all of life as a, as a competition with limited resources where you have to fight for your own. So you grab what you've got and you grumble about what you don't have, right? And, and your joy shrinks and your world shrinks, right? Two different ways of looking at life. This week, Jesus is switching the metaphor on us again. Uh, and this week we're talking about this whole master-slave relationship, which is uh, an interesting run. What we're looking at here really is the outworking of your heart. Like, so you bury your heart somewhere, either in your earthly treasure or your heavenly treasure. And then that manifests itself ultimately in, in how you approach life. So verse 24, let's take a look at that because this is what we're un- going to unpack. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve two masters. So before we dig in, let's ask the obvious question. Why not? Why can't you serve two masters? It's not an odd thing when you really think about it, right? Um, honestly, as I sat in this, I had to wrestle with this because people do it, it seems like, to me all the time, right? I have a lot of masters in my life and I have to learn how to manage the tension, right? I've got, I've got ministry and I got family. And both those in some ways are masters. <laughs> they have a lot of demands, right? And, and they're not always compliment, com- complimenting each other, right? They're in competition, right? Demands on my resources, on my time, on my energy, on my relational capacity, on my finances, Right? But, but I don't get to pick one master over the other. I have to learn how to manage the tension of both, right? Um, people do it all the time, right? We just have to figure out how to manage it. I can have two jobs. I've had two jobs. I've had four jobs. I've had a lot of jobs, right? You figure out how to, how to manage it. I can, I can have more than one needy friend. I may not enjoy it, but I can have more than one needy friend, right? A master who's just constantly, I can have more than one hobby, or allegiance, or passion. 
In the ancient world, the question then becomes, could a person have two masters? Could he be the slave of two households? Could he purposely become an indentured servant of two homes? Probably not. But not because his heart would be divided, but because his owners would have competing claims on his his time, right? If you're an indentured servant in, in, in this household, that landowner's not going to want to try to figure out how to split time with somebody else where you're also an indentured servant, right? So it's more likely because the landowner wouldn't want it to be a competition for your time and energy, and, but not about your heart. So what's Jesus getting at here? What does this even mean? Does it even make sense for Jesus to talk about a slave loving his master? Does that even make sense? Not only that he would love a, his masters, but he would end up having competing loves for his masters. All right, this actually makes a lot of sense if you realize that Jesus is speaking about voluntary slavery. Someone who chooses to be a bond slave. In the ancient world, um, Slavery was integral to the fabric of society. Um, slavery was part of the socioeconomic wiring, um, and it was very different from our experience. Like the American history of slavery is, is, is absolutely dehumanizing and brutal, right? And, and that affects the way we think of all of slavery, right? So when we think of slavery, we think of people being kidnapped from their homes and being robbed, not just of their basic rights, but, but of the basic dignity of humanity. Right? They were brought into a situation in which they had no rights, no human dignity was allowed to remain. It was dehumanizing and inherently brutal. Right? In, in the ancient world, slaves um, had rights, legal rights and legal protections. And I'm not saying it was a good institution or that it was always fair, but in, in many cases, um, slaves were in fact much more like lifelong employees than they were when we think of people that we think of the, the slavery of, of American history. Um, and so as a result, uh, there were a lot of ways you could become a slave. Um, people that were from a conquered nation would often be brought as slaves back to the homeland, but that wasn't so that they and their, their children would become lifelong indentured servants. It was so that those people would ultimately be enculturated into the dominant culture. The idea is that they would lose their uh, identity as a conquered nation and become um, integrated and assimilated into the conquering nation, right? You could, you could enter into slavery if you had a lot of debt. If you owed somebody money that you couldn't pay, you could go into debt for a specific amount of time. Uh, and it was time sensitive in order to pay that debt back. You could, there were, there were a lot of ways that, that somebody could have ended up in this situation. And, uh, and in fact, it was completely integrated into culture. Slaves own slaves, people own slaves. Back in this period of time, it would have been completely, um, like they wouldn't even known how to process the idea, if you would have come to them in the middle of the night and said, hey, do you want to escape your slavery? For most cases, it was such an integral part of society that people understood it not to be unjust, but necessary. Here's the thing. You could, in fact, become a bond slave, a slave by choice. There are ways to do that. Um, in the Old Testament, the way it was described is you would actually go and, and nail your earlobe to the doorpost pleasant. So your earring was a sign ultimately of, of indenturement, right? That you were saying, I bond myself. I voluntarily uh, bond myself to this household um, 
as a slave. Why would anybody do that? Well, because in that time, there were benefits and protections that came with lifelong indenturement. Like they could actually look at their lives and say, my life is better here. My future is brighter. I'm, I'm provided and protected. I have, I have meaningful employment. Um, I am part of something that, that I could not have. And, and so this is my best shot. So I choose to stay here. You guys, this is what Jesus is getting at. You are a bond slave. Not you could be a bond slave. Not, not you might become a bond slave. You are, you are a bond slave. What do I mean by that? I mean that you are absolutely dependent. <laughs> you were created by a God of sufficiency to be dependent on that God of sufficiency. You were, think about it. Think about your daily rhythms. Everything about our lives remind us how dependent we are, right? What happens if you don't eat, right? You get hangry and eventually you get worse than that. You die, right? What happens if you don't drink, right? You shrivel up and, and again, you eventually die. You know, what happens if you don't sleep? you become sleep deprived and you eventually die. What, what happens if you, you know what I'm saying? Like, like everything about you reminds you, your need for rest, your need for food, your need for water reminds you that you need something outside of yourself for sustenance. You're absolutely dependent. God created you that way. Why? Because he is the source of all sufficiency. And we were designed to, to live in dependency on God in relationship with God, having our deepest needs met by God, operating for his glory in his kingdom. And the lie of sin ultimately says we can be like God. We can be independent from God. We can provide for our own needs. We can build our own kingdom. We can live for our own glory. We can provide for ourselves. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you can't. You are a voluntary slave to whatever you think is going to meet your needs. You don't have a choice. And whether or not you will be a slave, the only thing you have a choice in is who you will enslave yourself to. You will look to someone or something outside of yourself to meet your deepest needs. See, Jesus knew that we were created to worship Right? We were created by the God of all glory to worship that God of glory, to live in absolute dependence on that God, to receive all good things from him, and then to live in gratitude and worship to the God who created us. Here's the thing. He knew that we were created to worship and that worship always leads to service and sacrifice. Always. Worship always manifests itself in service and sacrifice. So stick with me here. Let's talk a little bit about this. The, the English word worship uh, is a compound word that, that literally comes from worth-ship. It's what we invest worth into, right? So if you deem something to be worthy of your ultimate affections, you worship it, right? What we worship is what we find most worthy. And you devote your affections to that thing. You devote your praise to that thing. To that thing, you, you attribute ultimate worth, right? You look at it and you say, you are worthy of my life, of my sacrifice. Here's the thing, you're going to look to something to meet your deepest needs. And whatever that thing is, that's the thing you're looking at and saying you're worthy. You're worthy of my affection and my devotion 
you're you're ultimately worthy, and and, and that's the thing you're going to worship. You'll assign it ultimate worth, and you will serve it. The Old Testament has a beautiful picture for worship uh, in the in the drink offering. In the drink offering, what would happen is you would come and, and actually pour your drink on the altar. And it was a picture of what we do with our hearts. We pour ourselves out to what we worship, to what we value. And you were designed, remember, to be a worshiper. You don't have a choice. You were designed to be a worshiper. You will continually pour yourself out to something. And basically pouring yourself out to what you consider worthy, but you never do it without expectation. The reason you deem it worthy is you think whatever that thing is can meet your deepest needs. So you pour yourself out to it with the expectation that will then pour back into you. You pour out your energy and you pour out your, your time and, and, and your, your thought life and, and your affections to this whatever it is with the assumption that it will pour back into you. That it will ultimately provide one of the key New Testament words for worship, um, there are several that are translated worship in the New Testament. One is um, proskuneo, which literally means to kiss toward. I love this one. It means to kiss toward, and it's translated worship. Think about a dog licking your hand. The word actually came from the history of people coming and kissing the feet or the ground in front of the feet of a king or of a benefactor to kiss toward. It's a powerful image that speaks of both subservience and affection, right? Whatever it is you worship, you kiss toward. You come and you bow yourself before it. You pour yourself out to it. You, you open up your heart and you give it your affection because you're looking to it to do for you what you cannot do for yourself like a dog licking a master's hand or a subject kissing the ground in front of a benefactor's feet, there is both dependence and affection involved. Whatever it is that you attribute ultimate worth to is what you will submit yourself to. You will endure discomforts for it. You will sacrifice to it. You will give up time and energy and money for it. You will bend your uh, affections toward it and you will become defensive of it. You will look to it as both a servant and with affection. And it is in this sense that Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. He's not saying you can't have two jobs. He's saying you can't have two gods. You can't pour yourself out on two different altars. You can't serve in two different temples. You can't bury your heart in two different treasures. You cannot serve both God and money. Because we're not talking about time or energy. We're not talking about... What we're talking about is your heart's deepest affections. We're talking about your worship. And you will end up loving and serving one and despising the other. Why? Because they both demand absolute devotion and obedience. They both come to the table and basically say, I demand everything. And then they both promise 
I will give you everything in return. They both make exclusive claims on your hope. And as a result, they both make exclusive claims on your affection. And here's the thing. You're either going to look to money to meet your deepest needs, or you're going to look to God, right? So you're going to look to money and the things that it can buy, right? It, it can buy you affection. It can make people adore you. It can make people look up to you. It can make people envious of you. It can, it can make you feel worthwhile. It can make you feel loved, it can buy you success and the accoutrements that come with it. It can make people um, marvel at your glory and submit to your will. It can, it can buy you comforts, right, and pleasures. It, it, it can buy you um, a measure of security, right? It can buy you the right home. It can buy you the right security. It can, it can buy you the right environment, right? It promises to meet all of your needs, You'll either look to money to find your deepest heart needs met, or you'll meet to God, your creator. The God who looks at you and says, I love you. I meet your deep need for affection. The God who looks at you and says, I determine what is success and not, and living for my glory is a true challenge that results in true glory. The God who looks at you and says, I'm the one who created pleasure and created you for it. And I'm the one who will not only give you comfort, but joy. The God who says, I created all things, I sustain all things, I have power over all things, and I will protect you. You will find security. You're going to turn to one or the other. You can't turn to both at the same time. You're either going to look to God to meet your deepest needs and to care for your temporal ones, or you're going to turn to money and what it can buy. Either way, you're going to be looking to something outside of yourself. Either way, you're a bondservant. You, you're a slave. You're coming and pouring yourself out to this thing and requesting that it do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Now, I've already made the case in previous messages that money makes a horrible God. And I'm not going to try to remake that case completely. But here's the thing. It always makes promises that it never delivers on delivers on, right? It, it, it gives you the illusion, but not the reality, right? Can money buy you love? No. Can it make you feel loved? Absolutely. It'll buy you a lot of fans. It'll buy you a lot of people that like to be with you and around you and, and want to have a little bit of your, your, you know, your glory or your presence rub off on them. It'll definitely make you feel like people like you. Can it, can it buy you true success? Can, can money be the measure of true glory? Not a chance. Not a chance. But it can definitely give you the illusion of power. People will do what you want them to do. You can buy influence. You, you can, by, by, by wearing the right clothes and having the right things, gain a measure. It can make you feel safe to have a bank account, to have retirement, to live in the right neighborhood, to have the right car. It can make you feel like you're comfortable, right? But here's the thing. It's all an illusion. It's all an illusion. Why? Because it can only give you the image, but not the reality. It can't make you loved. It can't make you a genuine success. It can't make you genuinely safe, right? At the end of the day, rich and poor people are all buried in the same earth, 
right? It doesn't matter how much money you have. It gives you the illusion of safety. It gives you the illusion of control. It gives you the illusion of success, the illusion of affection. It gives you the illusion even of pleasure, right? No, no, that's real, man. Yeah, the pleasure, but the reality is you're just distracting yourself, right? You got enough money, you can distract yourself your whole life, but what are you distracting yourself from? You, your quiet desperation, your anxious heart, your, your fear of being alone, you're terrified of, of, right? So money can keep bringing new and shiny things into your life to distract you, but it's an illusion. It's not true pleasure. It's not true security. It's not true success. It's not true affection. It makes a horrible God because it continually promises and never delivers. And in the end, it leaves you desolate. When you bury your heart in earthly treasure, your heart is plundered. And you don't even know it. And at the end of the day, you're in way worse shape than you were at the beginning because it distracts you with the temporal bling of pleasure and pride. But in the end, your heart is plundered and left desolate of true hope. You know, Jesus said in a different context, what does it gain a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? to get all, like the full dose of the illusion, <laughs> but to get none of the reality. You are the greatest. You're in the greatest poverty because you're deluded into thinking you have riches until you realize at the last when they betray you that you haven't. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Wealth is a deceptive and alluring lie, isn't it? Come on, we're spiritual enough to at least admit that, right? Isn't it, isn't it deceptive and alluring? Wouldn't most of us in this room honestly say, I'd like to have a little more money? Yeah, just me? Yeah, I'm the only one, you know, uh, evil enough to admit it? Uh, here's the thing, it is, because it promises so much. It promises so much. Who, who wouldn't want a better vacation next year than the one they had last year? Who wouldn't want a vacation next year? Right? Who wouldn't want a better house or a better car or, or whatever it is that you're looking to that you think, man, that's the thing. That's the thing that if I could just get there, right? It's very deceptive, very alluring. Promises so much that we gladly give ourselves over to its deception. Don't we? We gladly pour ourselves out to that lie because the promise is so big and bright and shiny. We know it's not true. We'll gladly buy in. You guys, that's why what we do with our money is a deeply spiritual issue. Like, man, why do we have to talk about money so much in church? Because <laughs> we're talking about your heart. And honestly, we can't talk about your heart without eventually talking about money. What we spend our money on is not a budgetary concern. It's a spiritual one. Because there's a war going on in your heart for your affections, for your worship. And the battleground of that war is your checkbook. You're either going to turn to God to be God, to meet your deepest needs for approval, for success, for security, for comfort? Or are you going to turn to your earthly treasures? 
You're going to be growing in your affection for God and your dependence on God, or you're going to be growing in your affection for the things that the world offers and your dependence on those things. And while you do, you will grow in hatred for the other. You will. You will either come to resent God and the way God keeps putting demands on you that seem to limit you and keep you from getting the things you really want. Or you're going to come to resent money. And the way it just has a way of worming in between you and your experience of God's love for you. You will grow in love for one and you will grow to despise the other. Guys, this is where we need to come to understand that generosity is in fact a form of spiritual warfare. That it is part of our fight for our own hearts. One of the foundational premises of our original series, the Get Greedy series, is that what we do with our money reflects our hearts and shapes our hearts, right? And we know that. What we do with our money definitely reflects our hearts. Do you want to know where your altar of materialism is? Where your false God is in your heart? It's not hard to find if you really want to see it. Just ask yourself a simple question, and it's probably going to be uncomfortable, but where do you spend money without effort? Where does it just flow out of your hand? Where do you come and pour yourself out in sacrifice? And it doesn't even feel like sacrifice because your expectation of payback is so big, right? That's worship. When we pour ourselves out expecting to be poured back into, where we come and we sacrifice on the altar in the expectation of blessing in return. Follow your money. You'll find your idol. Where does your money flow easily? Where does your time flow, your energy flow? Where is it easiest for you to pour yourself out to sacrifice? You follow that path and you'll discover your false, uh, your false altar. Now you sit there long enough and it really gets discouraging. You don't want to sit there very long because here's the thing. The more you look at that, the uglier your heart becomes because you realize how much you actually sacrifice, how much you pour out. And pretty soon you realize that in your deception, your self-deception, even a lot of your good works were done for very evil motives. A lot of the things that you like, even, man, I did this thing, it's such a good thing, and it really had nothing to do with the good thing at all. It was you manipulating and working to try to get um, ultimately a blessing that, from God without going through God, you were trying to do it for yourself, right? So we don't want to sit there because here's the thing. What we do with our money not only shows us our hearts, what we do with our money shapes our heart. And this is what I want us to focus on. We aren't passive and helpless in this process. As followers of Christ, as those who have believed in Jesus and are covered with the righteousness of Christ and, and our guilt and shame has been removed and we've been covered with the Uh, resurrected righteousness of Christ, we need to see generosity as an act of spiritual warfare against our traitorous hearts. That what we do with our money shapes our hearts. What that means is that giving, 
is an important part of you learning how to be loved and to love God. Giving. Generosity. There's like a a boil on your soul of greed. And at the beginning, you treasure that boil and you protect that boil because you think somehow it actually contains the treasure. The light of the gospel comes in and shows you and you're like, man, that's really ugly. You still have to lance it. Generosity is a lance that opens the boil. It hurts. It does not feel good. Generosity is not something you do and go, yes, that was wonderful. It hurts. But it is necessary. Because as you give, you're shoving the sword into greed. It will hurt, but it is necessary and good. So you guys listen, as your pastor, I'm telling you, you need to give money away. And not just for the people you give it to, right? There are poor people that benefit. There are, there are worthy causes that benefit. And those are good reasons, right? As you give to a worthy cause, that cause is enabled to move forward in its pursuit of the worthy thing that it's doing, right? When you give to a poor person, you are bringing practical and real benefit into their lives, right? But I'm telling you that when you give, it's not just good for them. It is good for you. It is not just essential for them. It is essential for you. It is, in fact, one of the key ways that we tear down the altars that we've built in our soul to the false god of materialism, to the consumeristic greed that grips our hearts and drives our behavior. So what is uh, getting in the way? What's getting in the way? Tim Keller talks about this great concept called defeater beliefs. He says that, that it's hard to move forward in faith when you believe something that defeats that faith, right? A defeater belief, something that isn't necessarily true, but you give it so much power that it might as well be true because it blocks you from moving forward. What are the things, what are the defeater beliefs that are actually move, blocking you from moving forward in generosity, right? Well, let's take a look at a few of them. First of all, I, I, I already give, Right? Or I I already give enough. Hey, that's awesome. I'm glad you do. The average American gives away about 2% of their income. 2%. And they think that's generous. Right? I saw one study that showed that people spend more on soda and chips on a national scale than they do in charitable giving. If you actually add up the amount of money, like if you take in all the pleasures, the personal pleasures of life, the, the junk food, the entertainment, the things that we just spend to make us feel good, to distract us, if you add all of that up and compare it to what you give, it makes that giving feel pretty small, if we're honest. Now, here's the thing, you guys. I'm going to be very clear. There is no magic number when it comes to giving. There are some people that will teach, man, you got to give your 10%. When you give 10%, God will open up the storehouses of heaven and he'll pour out his blessings on you. That is absolutely unbiblical. When you read the New Testament, the tithe is not mentioned anywhere except when Jesus calls out the Pharisees for being legalistic in their tithing and then owning the rest as if somehow it were theirs. In the New Testament, you know what the standard of giving is? Everything. I'm not exaggerating. Like, The New Testament basically says everything you have is God's. You're a steward. It's not yours. 
It's not like you give away 10% and then you get to own 90 and that gets to be used in whatever way you want. You are a steward of what God has entrusted to you and you get to use it. Now, obviously you get to use it for your good. That's part of the reason he entrusted it to you, right? To provide for your family and to, to, to measure pleasure in life, right? There's, there's a sense in which God gives to us for his glory and for our good, right? But it does mean it's all his, Right? The lie of independence says, if I just do enough, then I don't have to submit to God anymore. Then it's all mine. Then I get to be my own God. It's not the way it works. We were created to be utterly dependent on God. And part of that dependence is coming to him and asking him, how would you have me manage what you have entrusted to me? It's all his. So how much should you give? I think the only safe answer I can give you is more. (laughs) More. Right? What does greed say? How much more do you need to be happy? How much? More. And then you get that, how much more, right? The way you combat that inward black hole of greed is with the outward push of grace moving through generosity. That means it's going to hurt. You should be giving more than you're comfortable giving. C.S. Lewis puts it way better than I do. He said this. He said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts and luxuries and amusements and things like this is not up to is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own we are probably giving away too little if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us i should say they are too small there ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them ouch There are things I can't do, but you know why? Because I haven't got enough money yet. There are things I want to do and I haven't been able to do them yet. You know why? Because I haven't got enough money yet. What he's saying is there should be things I want to do that I can't do because I'm giving away too much. It should hamper me. It should hinder me. It should pinch. Why in the world would Lewis give this kind of advice? This makes no sense. If you approach the world through greed, see the world as a field of limited resources where I have to fight for my own and be jealous of what I don't have. But if you approach the world through grace, recognizing that the God of all creation is for you, has loved you, has given you all things in Christ and has freed you into absolute dependency on him, then why couldn't you generously, freely follow a God of generous freedom? A God who has given you all things. He has given you Christ and all things in him. Why would you not boldly follow him into the radical flow of generosity that is at the heart of his nature? See, Lewis understood that generosity was essential for shaping our soul for grace. That there is a sense in which we need to bring the knife to that part of our soul that wants to be independent from God, that we need to bring the knife 
to that boil. And it's going to hurt and it's going to pinch and it's going to be uncomfortable. But it is a glorious act of spiritual warfare in which we are declaring my trust in God is greater than my trust in my autonomy, my strength, my ability to provide for myself. I will pour myself out on the altar of God. I will, I will deny and refuse and tear down the altar of materialism. And if your generosity doesn't hurt, it's probably because you've deceived yourself into thinking that you've already torn down the altar and it doesn't exist while secretly you continue to pour yourself on it. Second defeater belief, I don't have enough to give. I don't have enough. Like when I get enough, then I'll give. And the flip side of that, it won't make any difference anyway because I don't have enough, right? Um, one of the biggest mistakes we make is thinking that poor people can't be greedy because they don't have enough money to be greedy, right? If I could just have a little bit more, then that might be my struggle. But Steve, that's not my struggle. I don't even have money to pay the bills. I get it. I get it. But really what you need to hear is, is behind that is this subtle lie that says, I don't have enough money to be greedy. If I could just have a little more, which is the language of greed. If I could just have a little more, then I might struggle with greed. But I don't have that more, so I don't struggle with it. Really? Yeah, you guys, I, I know some people that are relatively poor that struggle, not, not in a world scale, because that's a very different standard, but an American scale of what we consider poverty. And there are some people that I know struggle, and, and, and I, they're some of the greediest people I know. They spend all their time thinking about what they don't have, focusing on what they can't buy, being jealous of what somebody else can do or have, and, 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 and ultimately gripping what they have and grumbling about what they don't. And I know some people that are very, very well off financially, and they are some of the most generous people I know. Here's the thing, you guys. Generosity isn't about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. It's about, about this sense of following God wholly and recognizing he's the owner, not myself right? This is what makes sense of Jesus praising the widow who gave her mite. The mite was the smallest coin. And he's sitting there watching the treasury at the temple. And he praises the woman who gives the mite and says, she gave more than all the others. What? Her heart was freer than all the others. Her level of generosity was more radical than all the others. This is what makes sense of Paul praising the Macedonians. The Macedonians contributed to an offering that Paul was taking for the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. And they were poor. They didn't have a lot of money. So their part of the contribution was relatively small. But he says they gave to their ability and in fact beyond. They were jealous for the opportunity to give. Their generosity drove them in their poverty to great sacrifice. Even though what they gave was smaller it reflected a greater experience of grace, gratitude, and generosity. Here's the thing, you guys. We all have the same exact amount of grace in Christ. Every believer, if you've believed in Christ, you are fully enriched with the grace of God. And, and all of his blessings are yours, but not everybody in this room is experiencing the same amount of grace. We all had the same amount, but we're not all experiencing it. What we're talking about is learning to move more and more deeply into that flow of grace and gratitude and generosity generosity by giving, we are spiritually enacting spiritual warfare on the deceptions of our own heart and saying, I want a deeper experience of grace. I want a deeper experience of God's love for me. I want a deeper experience of dependence on God by killing the things that I depend on in his place. 
There were people in our capital campaign that gave, they committed $350 to three years, essentially $10 a month, which relatively is not a lot of money, $10 a month, but I knew their circumstance. I knew they were in fact sacrificing every month. It pinched, like every month they felt that check. They were going to miss that money. It was actually hindering them from doing things they wanted to do, but they did it anyway. And their gift challenged me and humbled me and encouraged me because they were declaring God's more glorious. His provision is more bountiful. So it's good for them. And it's good for the church. And here's the deal. No gift is without value because ultimately there's tremendous value to the one who gives it. Every time we give, we challenge our own hearts toward generosity. We push ourselves back toward grace. All right, final one. Some of you are like, Steve, just shut up. (laughs) Right? Steve, seriously, stop talking about money. Um, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. Like, I'm not going to talk about this every week. I'm not saying that. But I am going to keep coming back to it. Why? Because Jesus didn't shut up about it. And I'm not Jesus for sure. I need this stuff as much as anybody. But here's the thing, and I'm making this as clear as I can. This isn't about your money. It's about your heart. I want us, obviously, to raise the money we need to finish our building, right? I want that. I think a lot of people in this room want that too. We want to come together as a community and, and, and maximize the opportunity in front of us, right? To put down roots into this community so we can grow in, in ministry to our neighbors, right? We want to, to experience that and to have that. But I want way more than your money. I want your heart. Fully freed. And poured out on the altar in worship to the true God the one who genuinely satisfies and meets our deepest needs. So the most loving thing I can say to you is give. Give. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you don't trust me, if you don't trust us, and and you're like, man, that sounds self-serving, give to somebody else. (laughs) But don't allow your cynicism to become this unhealthy covering of your greed. Give. Find someone in need and give. Find a cause you do believe in and give. Give till it hurts. And when it stops hurting, give some more. Give. I guarantee that as you do, it will challenge deep, deep, deep heart assumptions you don't even know are there. Assumptions about where you find your identity, where you find your security, where you find your comfort, where you find your joy. And you will discover greater and greater depths and experiences of the grace of God. All right, I know the advice I'm giving you sounds crazy, and I know um, that honestly it is. If you're approaching life through the lens of this greedy culture, this consumeristic culture, But listen, I am telling you, man, we have to learn how to bury our hearts in the right place. 
We have to learn how to bury our hearts in the right storehouse, in the right place where our hearts are safe and nourished and fed. We need to keep a clear vision of what is real and what is important, right? A hundred years from now, there are things that we think are so important right now, they're not even going to be a blip on the radar. We need to keep a vision that this is not all there is, that this time is not all that's been given to us, that this is in fact the prelude to the truer and greater story. And we need to see that when we give, it is an act of joyful worship and an act of spiritual warfare. Worship to God, spiritual warfare against our sin. We need to see it as an act of godly rebellion against hearts that want to worship in the wrong place, hope in the wrong things, pour themselves out into broken cisterns. I put a post out on the city this week. If if you're not on the city, I would encourage you to join. It's our online communication tool. Um, You can do it at the connection point. 15 seconds, we'll get you signed up. But I put a post out this week detailing um, our special offering. And we have it coming up on October 4th, which is in two weeks. I'm not going to go over all that information. I put out a link on Facebook as well, and, and, and we're calling it Commitment Sunday. And in two weeks, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. One of three things. I'm going to ask you either to commit to finishing your pledge. Like if you joined our, our capital campaign a year and a half ago, you pledged. Thank you. We're going to ask you to commit to finishing that pledge. And if you've gotten behind a little bit, like me, figuring out how you're going to get caught up, and it's going to pinch, it's going to hurt, right? If you can't get caught up, or if you have to adjust it, adjust it. Let us know. If you pray about it, and you're like, I just can't do that anymore, that's not where I am, adjust it, because we want to have the most realistic figure we can possibly have moving forward, right? So adjust the amount in worship and and gratitude to God, knowing that, man, praise God, you get to give it all, right? Secondly, there are some people that have been prospered over the last year and a half, and you're able to give more. You can give more than you originally pledged. I'm going to ask you to pray about it and ask God if you should. If he would lead you to a, a deeper experience of gratitude and a greater gift toward this cause. Thirdly, there are some that have joined this church in the last uh, year and a half that weren't invited to be part of the capital campaign. I'm going to invite you to jump in, <laughs> Right? You have an opportunity to invest in a critical juncture in the life of this church, which is going to allow us to impact this community for many, many years to come. Uh, We would love to have you be part of the community that is working together uh, to sacrifice together to move this church forward on mission, right? And so uh, we're going to ask you on Commitment Sunday to do one of those three things. We're also going to be taking up a special offering on that day. We normally do that at the end of the year. In December, it's a mission offering that allows us to, to take money outside of our normal budget and put it towards special Um, uh, needs or projects or to fund um, mission activity. This year we're moving it up because we have a small window where where we have some options. And it's not that when that window passes, all our options are gone. It's just we have a small window to maximize some of the opportunities in front of us right now. We want to put ourselves in the best position to do that. And so we're going to be taking a special offering on October 4th. And we ask for you to pray and figure out how you should be involved, right? Now, some of you are like, man, I, I give a special end-of-the-year gift, but it's not going to be able to come till December. I get it, right? We'll accept the special offerings all the way until then. We're just asking if you have the ability to be involved earlier so that we can be equipped uh, to be in the best position to move forward with the opportunities now. So, so here's the thing, you guys. Here's, here's what I'm going to ask of you. Do me a favor. Just pray about it. Ask God to give you a genuine heart of submission to him, of absolute yieldedness to him, that he will show you where you are pouring yourself out 
to things that aren't going to pay back where, where maybe you need to feel the pinch a little bit. I don't know. But ask him. Ask him if you should be involved and ask him at what level you should be involved. Right? And if God's like, no, I want you to give the money over here, go give the money over there, please. Yeah. It's way more important to me. I was just talking to somebody out in the, the lobby and we were, he was just, we were kind of talking about how much we love this church. That what God is doing here really is unique and, and beautiful. And I'm so thankful for the work of the Spirit in, the, in, in us, in this people. And, and I was like, man, I'm really looking forward to getting into the building. And what's interesting is right when I said it, I thought, you know what? I am. But you know what I'm more excited about? Being us. Being a community of people that are discovering the grace of God together and sharing that grace with one another and being transformed by it. Yeah, the building's important. And yeah, we're going to get there. But I am not lying when I say to you, I am jealous for God's grace in your heart. Because if you go deep in grace, man, you're going to flow in generosity. And as you flow in generosity, man, you're going to show Christ to a lost and dying world. You're going to experience the grace of God in your own tired soul. And you're going to share it with other people that are celebrating that grace. That's what I want. So pray about it. Two weeks, we'll be doing that. I just ask you to pray about it. All right, we're going to go into a time of reflection. I'm going to put some questions up on the screen, ask you to pray. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to share communion in a moment. Uh, But before we do, I'll just pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are, by your nature, a God of generosity. By your nature, you give. You love, so you give. You pour yourself out, not because you worship us or need us, but because there is so much good in you. You simply pour out your goodness to us in love. And Father, we are so blinded by our our need for autonomy, our sinful desire not to be dependent on you, our, our desire for your glory to build our own kingdoms. Man, we are so blinded that we turn away from the true treasure and we hug and we cherish and we love what is decayed and broken and life-taking. Father, give us eyes to see that the light might flood our lives. Give us hearts to be buried in the true treasure. Let us be undone by grace and moved with genuine gratitude into the flow of your generosity.